May only truth be spoken and only truth received. The assignment was John chapter 6. And this chapter of the gospel tells a tale of two miracles and the challenging conversations, the divisions these exploits generated. These stories depict Jesus at the height of his popularity, providing powerful demonstrations of spiritual authority by showing mastery over the material realm. This was Jesus amplifying his message of a special status as divinity in human form, the mind-boggling idea that the almighty creator of everything would appear in humble flesh to live for a while among us as one of us. This was God showing up with physics-defying feats experienced by thousands of witnesses. Awesome demonstrations. So, what was he trying to prove? Let's back up a bit. Jesus' ministry years can be divided into three phases. He began in obscurity, and he methodically built up an expanding reputation as an ethical teacher and a healer. He was able to heal all kinds of diseases. And at some point, which if you can heal a lot of people comes quickly, he became popular. And great crowds of people would come out to hear him speak, to be touched in their spirits and for many, also in their bodies. And this popularity and this ability to command a crowd made him a threat to the powers that be, a potential agent of rebellion in a country that was being governed by a foreign conqueror. Those content with or complicit in the status quo pushed back, and Jesus faced increasing hostility from obscurity to popularity to opposition. And this chapter marks a tipping point. The stories occur with a very popular Jesus about to turn powers, uh, ideas of power upside down to force a radical rethinking of what the anointed one, the Messiah, came to achieve. The people of Israel were looking for a savior and they yearned for liberation. They longed to govern their own affairs free from the tyranny of Rome. The Jewish population harbored plenty who were eager, downright zealous, to cast out the colonizers, to be insurrectionists. And their initiatives typically ran out of steam as the harsh boot of Rome cowed the populations into compliance. It was a restless era, the threat of violence, a constant companion. And thus, when Jesus burst on the scene as a charismatic preacher able to gather a crowd and wow them with his authority, the masses began clinging to him with a wild hope for freedom. The people who were doing well, however, the power brokers, 
conspired to resist with a vengeance. The events described in John 6's 71 verses cover just a couple of days. In the first miracle, Jesus took the lunch of a young lad and multiplied it into a feeding of 5,000 people with leftovers to spare. In the second, he walked on water and then teletransported a boatload of disciples to their destination in an instant. We'll talk more about that a bit later. <laughs> but for now, let's consider the crowds and Jesus' response. The masses who were fed were indeed wowed by the miracle. To them, it seemed the stars had aligned and their salvation had come. They wanted a powerful leader, and now here he was. Yet Jesus had different ideas. This man of the hour was much more interested in being the Lord of eternity. Chapter, verse 15, it says, When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus was not the least bit interested in becoming their governor in any political sense. He maintained that spiritual connection with God is worth more than anything that this world can offer. Jesus would not let this very strong, mighty platform that he created for himself be put to political or commercial or any other purpose. It was to call people to repentant and perhaps costly relationship with their creator. The populist crowd in John chapter 6 wanted an earthly savior, a role Jesus was not willing to play. And so this passage highlights a division. This is where the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God diverged. It showed a fault line. If Jesus had wanted to pander to the crowd, he would have accepted their accolades and put his energies into the exercise of raw political power. But you may recall that Jesus faced temptations in the wilderness, and so these were some of the very things that he chose at that time not to take that temptation. Now here it was, right in his face, as an opportunity, and he declined. He could have done it. He might have led a return to an independent Israeli state and probably served as prime minister. He could have turned the spectacle of bread and the wilderness and the circus of miracle healings to immediate and dramatic revolutionary effect. But he didn't. He was about so much more. Jesus is the man who would not be king. Now, the stories in this chapter are deeply symbolic, and we can only begin to scratch the surface of their layered meanings this morning. But Jesus' bottom line message is the proclamation that he himself is the bread of life. 
the source of the sustenance that we truly need as human beings, something that matters more than any success that we could ever crave. Something deeper and more personal matters more. Seeking spiritual intimacy is the life ultimately worth living. And this is a hard thing for us earthbound creatures to get a handle on. So let's look briefly then at the first story where some 5,000 people received their daily nutritional needs through a miraculous multiplication of a few small loaves and a couple of fish. For the people of Israel at that time, ensconced in the Hebrew religious traditions, to participate in the miracle that replicated God's provision of daily manna to God's people in the wilderness would be a telling experience. It would resonate with the richness of what they had been taught to believe. It would suggest that the time uh, had come for Israel to be redeemed, and they would interpret this as a political expectation, as a means of reprieve from their overlords. It's hard for any of us to think in terms of eternity when our feet are planted firmly on planet Earth. Jesus, however, did. Actually, I find it kind of hard to know what to focus on this story. I'm, I like Andrew, and he shows up in it. Uh, Andrew, um, among the disciples, was the first one to follow Jesus. And he had a wonderful gift he showed several times of bringing people to Jesus, including his own brother Peter, who became the rock on which the Christian church was built. But none of that was on anybody's mind as the events of this chapter were taking place. People were out in the field. They were far away from the town. And at some point, the crowds got hungry. I imagine their mood changed. And they realized that finding food would be very difficult. It would be very inconvenient and disruptive. Something about Jesus' teaching had kept them drawn to the wilderness. But human bodies do require their daily bread. And that's when Jesus worked the miracle that fed all those people and had leftovers. I don't know why I love that detail. They had leftovers. I like leftovers. Even before this, Jesus' popularity with the people was so high that he'd had to get out of town. The crowds had been so pressing that he could not stay in populated areas because the crush of people were eager to see him, to touch him. And they could scarcely be managed. Parched souls thirsting for restoration and maimed bodies pleading to be healed streamed towards Jesus like iron filings to a magnet. He had to get away. He had to make space. He had to get to a place away from the crowds, and he went off to the mountain so he could be alone, and the people followed him 
to the wilderness. At least there was space there for the crowds to be accommodated. Jesus had retreated from the Roman named town Tiberias to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And crowds followed him to the place where the mass meal miracle occurred. <clears throat> and it's kind of interesting to observe that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus to be recorded in all four of the Gospels. And the Gospel of John introduces two details that are not noticed anywhere else. Specifically, our passage today adds that the Jewish Passover was approaching, the time of the year when groups would be making their way to Jerusalem to participate in the rituals and festivals. It was, it was a time of pilgrimage, a religious observance celebrating God's great deliverance that brought the children of Israel to the promised land. Their national identity had been forged through release from a long captivity. Now they are again a captive people yearning to be free. Roman soldiers would have been on high alert for insurrectionist sentiment. And there would have been zealots eager for radical action. It was an unsettled time. A leader who could harness widespread Jewish resentment would have had a very willing popular force. The masses would have been with him. In temporal terms, Jesus was peaking at just the right time to really make things happen. Now, looking back on events that occurred some 2,000 years ago makes it easier to realize that Jesus' words and actions spoke to more than the politics and contingencies of the day. They were impregnated with deep meaning. The feeding of the 5,000 highlights a key element of their religious heritage, recalling a time when God provided mightily when they were miraculously delivered from starvation by the provision of a daily gift of manna, of bread from heaven to provide for people in the wilderness, for a people in straitened circumstances to receive their daily bread. These themes had a deep resonance in the cultural reality of Jesus' time. All these things, the socio-political environment, the festival season, the religious legacy and the yearning of a captive people, the mind-blowing phenomenon of Jesus' miracles, all these things flowed together in a mighty surge of nationalist, uh, nationalist pride that propelled some faction within the crowd to not just nominate Jesus for leadership, to, but to be downright insistent about it. When Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The second detail found only in John's gospel related to this miracle is that Jesus retreated to the mountain. He'd met there earlier with his disciples he had a habit 
of slipping away and finding some solitary time. And so when they came to try to take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain. Now, I wonder how hard they pursued him. The text doesn't give us any details. How he got away from those who wanted to take him by force to make him king. Did he pull some kind of supernatural trick? Doesn't say. Yet we know that he escaped and that he was not co-opted. And we can surmise that his practice would have been to pray, to get that much-needed quiet time, to be sure to maintain the connection with his Father in heaven. At any rate, the text tells us that he was alone when his disciples got into a boat and they were a few miles offshore in rough waters after dark. And that's when Jesus came strolling over the waves and scared them silly. But he said to them, and this is verse 20, he said, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they wanted to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Zoom. I'm not even going to try to explain that. It must have been quite the experience for the disciples. And it certainly left the crowds bewildered when the next day, when they found him on the other side of the sea from when they, at last they had seen him. How did he get there? What happened? And it was at that point when he began engaging with the people again that the difficult conversations began. Jesus forcefully resisted these kingly aspirations and increased the stakes for all those who would associate with them, with him. He made claims they found very difficult to validate, ideas that smacked to them of blasphemy. And truth be told, knowing my own personality as well as I do, I doubt if I would have decided to follow Jesus at that time. For someone to posit himself as the bread of life that must be eaten as the way to be in the God stream and gain eternal life would probably have been a deal breaker for me, as it was for so many in Jesus' time. Even today, our mental institutions are filled with people with messianic delusions who use God language to express the vast dimensions of what they feel and who they think they are, and we tend to dismiss those ideas right out of hand. Yet when the story of Jesus crossing the water leaked out, it too resonated with the great themes of Israel's history a reenactment of the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea in the escape from Egypt. Had the spiritual and the material realms ever intersected so transparently since then? Had God's chosen people ever before been witness to such powerful deeds to demonstrate cosmic authority meeting the needs of a human body along with its resident soul? on symbolic, 
religious, cultural, historical, psychological, sociological, and all kinds of levels, the enduring promise of an anointed one come to set people free seemed within grasp. The hopes and fears of all the years seemed met in that moment. I'm not going to try to unpack the last 50 verses of this chapter today. Verses that chronicle increasingly disputatious conversations about Jesus as the bread of life, except to notice the results. Jesus delivers some very demanding, difficult teachings in these verses. And, verse 66, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. The masses dissipated. His would-be lieutenants in a campaign for power decided this commander was too weird to hang around with. His chosen 12 did decide to stick with him, but it wasn't an easy decision, and Jesus already knew that one of them would betray him. From obscurity to popularity to opposition. In retrospect, we can see that the historical record shows how Jesus managed to have an impact on human history far beyond anything that the people in the field could have even imagined. 2,000 years later, Jesus continues to inf influence significant populations throughout the globe, and the values of eternity outperform the contingencies of any generation. And so I wonder if any of you find yourselves in these stories. Do you wonder how you might have responded had you been there? What about now, when miracles of this magnitude, at any rate, seem so far away? What are your life priorities? How fixed are you on the needs and contingencies of the present era? You do need to take care of yourselves. But what about all those realities that lie beyond our daily ken? Is eternity also on your minds? Do you seek? And do you find sources of spiritual refreshing daily bread for both body and soul? You can pack a few of those questions into your pipe and puff on them a bit a little later. But in closing, I simply want to suggest that if you find ways to give significant attention to your spiritual development, you will be guided and provided in the material realm. This is both my faith and my experience. Meditating on the life and words of Jesus is a portal to the enduring truth of the ages. We are invited into a relationship with the creator of the cosmos, and in the process, we can learn how to live more abundantly. As Jesus elsewhere said, 
strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And all these things, all these material things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Lord God, universe maker, thank you for giving us breath, bread and water, breath and life. Thank you for giving us purpose and meaning. Thank you for inviting us to share in your work of mending the world. Deepen our prayers, guide our steps, guard us from whatever leads astray, saturate our speech with words of grace, and fill us with energy and joy to do the work of our hands. Amen.